This is the Baymont Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, I'm with Reed Dent to talk about the story of the rich fool and the dynamics of money and relationships. Welcome back, Reed. Hey, uh, once again, once again, Brent, you and me, just the two of us, I think we did this once before, and we we are all without Marty so we can do we can do whatever we want <laughs> this is this is the uh if you know if your parable series is a chiasm this is the center of the chiasm so i don't know if you were <laughs> if you were thinking that or not um which means finally we finally we get to the real point of it all which is that marty <laughs> is not here that's the point that's the truth that's the kernel that is it no no uh okay so yeah we were we're we're in for the uh the parable of what we are calling the barn builder which i stole uh from that title from eugene peterson's book tell it slant and uh he's also known as the rich fool or the rich landowner this one is i think this one is fairly known i would guess but definitely not as well known as the good samaritan or the prodigal son or those kind of big ones. It's a little bit shorter. Um, so yeah, we're going to read through it here and then just kind of have a little discussion and see where that takes us. Yeah. And just to set the the stage a little bit. Um, so in Luke, we're in Luke 12 today in Luke 11, at the end of the chapter, Jesus has just gone outside um, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are upset with him at this point. They're trying to catch him in something. And then at the beginning of 12, it says, meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered mm. so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples mm -hmm. saying, blah, blah, blah. Then we get to our story. Um, several paragraphs later, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, blah, blah, blah. Jesus replied, and we're going to talk specifically about who exactly Jesus is replying to and who he's addressing. Mm -hmm. um, but then after our parable, it says, then Jesus said to his disciples, so he's back to the disciples again, goes on for quite a while. Peter seems to interrupt him and says, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? <laughs> and Jesus sort of responds, but doesn't really answer his question. Mm -hmm. And then at the, the last two paragraphs of chapter 12, it says, Jesus said to the crowd. So he's explicitly, at least according to Luke, he's explicitly addressing the crowd again. Mm -hmm. And then at the beginning of 13, it says, now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about blah, blah, blah. So there's yeah. a lot of like back and forth of like, it seems like Jesus is really just trying to hang out with his disciples, but he's got this massive crowd of thousands of people hanging around. Yeah. Um, and there's a little bit of tension there about like who Jesus is talking to. And you know what this reminds me of is the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew six, yes. seven or five, six and seven, um, because there's even some ambiguity there. Like when the Sermon on the Mount begins, it says that Jesus begins speaking to his disciples. But then at the end of the sermon, it talks about how all of the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Uh, and right. so it's it's almost like you he's he's talking to the disciples, but definitely in the hearing of all of these other people. Uh, and I, I, Jesus is obviously going to be aware that they're all listening in. Um, there's even a section in Luke 12 here, which we may speak about a little bit toward the end that directly parallels. I mean, this is like this section of Luke, you're, you're getting him taking portions of the Sermon on the Mount and, and putting them here. 
even direct lifts. Um, and there's an interesting parallel between uh, this story that we're going to talk about today and one of the sections that's well known in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, but we'll get to that. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, I think I think we should go ahead and get into it. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. So I think, I think this is kind of a funny, this is kind of a funny episode. Because uh, again, if you're thinking about um, Sermon on the Mount, like you imagine that scene from Matthew. And in, in Matthew, you picture it like you get the sense that this is kind of uh, the crowd is quiet and listening, and it is an unbroken string of teaching from Jesus. And if this is kind of Luke's version or some of his version of the Sermon on the Mount, I just I get a Monty Python vibe out of this. Uh, where Jesus is like teaching and then somebody just pipes up and they have this very personal uh, issue <laughs> to them uh, that they are wanting Jesus to stop what he is doing. And they're like, oh, yeah, I tied my brother to div- oh, that's a terrible British accent. But, you know, <laughs> like he's like he's just got this quibble about an inheritance. And Jesus is like, 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 what, <laughs> what? Uh, so I, yeah, I, I was, I was trying to read Jesus's first portion in Luke 12 and see like, was there anything that this guy was like <laughs> clinging onto and like, Oh, this is, this is the right time for me to ask this question. No, he's just, he just, he's just like, no, this now I got, I got to say something and he just can't hold it in anymore. Uh, and so we got this guy, uh, we're, we're just going to call him the younger brother. And, um, and that's because in this dispute over the inheritance, I would assume, and I don't know this, but I would assume that, uh, the older brother is probably the one who is controlling the inheritance. And so, uh, he's the, the younger brother is wanting the older brother to divide it. So for the sake of ease, we'll just call him younger brother and older brother. Uh, so we got this guy, uh, this younger brother, and apparently somebody has died. His father has died. Who knows how long ago? Um, I would assume not too long ago, but I don't really know. Uh, he's got a father who's died. And there is this older brother who is keeping what should belong to the younger brother. Uh, and if this older brother, uh, he, he probably has the, the double portion, uh, right? That's what the, the older brother, the oldest gets double and the younger gets to single portion or, you know, even of whatever's left. Uh, and this younger brother's not getting even the smaller bit that should belong to him. And so he says to Jesus, Hey, tell my brother, uh, to give me what's mine, which I, I mean, my first thought is, yeah, I mean, this feels like parenting to me a little bit which is constantly <laughs> settling disputes over just having to like, you have the authority. So step in and make something happen for me. Uh, 
And of course, there's no question from the younger brother. There's no uh, there's no sense of self doubt about what should happen. Like he knows when he said when it says that he tells or when he says to Jesus, tell him. He's not coming to Jesus, you know, in what would have been a more customary way where it's like, hey, rabbi, I'm having this problem with uh, my family. Can you help us mediate a dispute? Help us come to like a just and fair agreement. Now, this this guy, like he knows and he doesn't really want Jesus input about anything. He's just saying, you know, tell my brother to give me what's mine. Uh, and if if I'm trying to get into the mentality of this younger brother a little bit, um, it seems like this this brother assumes that the problem going on here is the what needs intervention is uh, this greedy brother who won't give the younger brother his his stuff, his possessions, which Jesus is going to speak to in a second. And I'm assuming that the younger brother thinks, you know, if only I could get what's mine, then everything will be set. The problems will be resolved and we can move on. And I think this brother uh, sees himself probably just more purely as the victim here. Like I'm the one who's being mistreated. And so do this thing to make things just and fair. I also want to note, I just want to pause here and say like, this is not uh, this particular problem of like dividing up an inheritance and there being like conflict over an inheritance is not a problem that is foreign to our world. Uh, we, I guess th they don't exactly get, these disputes don't get mediated in the same way or resolved in the same way, but the same problem of uh, who's going to get what from a will is an enduring problem. Or at least, I don't know, Brent, if you have any experience with this, I have seen this play out with friends and family where someone has died and now the siblings have to figure out who's going to get what. And it is not, uh, it's not pretty to say the least. And uh, there's there. So, so Jesus, the, so the guy is like, Hey, do this thing. Uh, give me what's mine. And we're going to move on. And so Jesus though, I think he perceives that there is a different problem going on here than just that this younger brother is not getting what's owed to him. And I guess it makes sense to me uh, that the deeper problem that Jesus sees is also something like that we know that we're familiar with, because I'm guessing like at least in the ways that I've seen it play out in the people that I know, when there is like this big fight over who's going to get, you know, the family ring or who's going to get the bedroom set or who's going to get the money, uh, that it's usually not only about the possessions you know what I'm saying? Like, it's it's usually not that everything is fine and now they just can't agree. And so now there's this big fight uh, that oftentimes this becomes uh, a ground for manifesting other problems like that are already existing in those relationships. And I think Jesus sees that. And I think we see that in his response to the guy because he speaks up to this guy in the crowd and I don't know how you read his tone. I maybe he's a little annoyed when he's like, "Man, who made me uh, a judge?" <laughs> I don't know. How do you read it? Like, uh, well, I was thinking about this. So I, I feel like it's the exact same type of just generic way of addressing a person. Um, and and when it's when it's a man, we play it up like that. Like, man, who appointed oh, me yeah, a judge? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But when he says woman. But, 
But when he says woman, especially to his mom in John two, mm-hmm. uh, it's like we fall all over ourselves trying to explain how he's not being disrespectful. This mm-hmm. was just a normal way of dressing someone, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. I think it's just that. I think it's just a normal, just a normal way. He's like, you know, this guy comes up and who knows, like there's, there's a lot we don't know about this story. Yeah. Like, has this guy been in the crowd because the crowd was thousands. It's not like Jesus has, you know, track of every single person who's there. Right. Um, so maybe this guy hasn't even heard what Jesus has been talking about. He just heard that Jesus was in the area and he's like, oh, this guy will solve my problems. And so he, you know, fights through the crowd and he gets to the front and interrupts at, you know, not not the appropriate moment. Right. I think I think it would make sense that he hasn't been there the whole time. And so Jesus, not knowing who this guy is, just addresses him in the generic. Not not like man, but like, hey, man, who made me an arbiter, a judge or an arbiter between you? And I, I, I want to pay attention to this response uh, because I, I mean, it's yes, it is. Uh, it, it was a thing that the rabbis, the teachers were asked to mediate issues uh, between people. Uh, between family members, between friends and neighbors and all of that. Um, Jesus seems reluctant to take up that role here. He doesn't want to just decide about, you know, who's going to get what. And here I think is why, because he says, uh, who who made this word arbiter? That is how it's translated in the NIV. Uh, this word doesn't really, I don't think it shows up other places in the New Testament or in the Gospels. Uh, and the word comes from it's it's divider, as in somebody who divides something into two. Uh, and uh, you see it like uh, in other other instances, uh, the root word that it comes from, where it's like uh, Jesus is talking about Satan and being divided. He's like a, you know a house divided against itself, or is that Abraham Lincoln I'm quoting or Jesus? Uh, but you know, if <laughs> that, you know, the, the phrase I'm talking about and it's like, yeah, it's yeah, not yeah. going to, not going to work if it's divided against itself. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't, maybe Abraham Lincoln said something like that too, but that, that is Jesus talking about that. Um, it is only used one time in the entire new Testament. Yeah. And so Jesus says, uh, who made me a divider between you? Uh, not like a, I mean, it could be a divider of your stuff. Like who, why would you assume that I am going to do this, uh, mediate this dispute about an inheritance? But like we said, that was a customary, that was a thing that happened. And so Jesus, I think I'm, I'm reading it a lot more personally where he is saying, who made me a divider between you and your brother? In other words, like the way that I read it is, uh, Hey, Hey man, don't try to make me do something that is going to further break what is apparently an already broken relationship. Uh, there's there's actually an interesting parallel here in the Gospel of Thomas, which I know the Gospel of Thomas is not a canonical gospel. I know that like we're not according the Gospel of Thomas like the same kind of authority that we are giving to the four Gospels. I'm not saying anything like that, uh, just as a disclaimer. But this this same dialogue between uh, this younger brother and Jesus pops up in uh, one of the sayings in the Gospel of Thomas. And Jesus says the same thing. But in Thomas, it's there's this little aside added where he turns to uh, the disciples and he says, I am not a divider, am I? Um, and I, I read that as 
uh, I am not a divider of people, am I? Like, you know me to be uh, a reconciler, not a divider. And so it's it's the way that I read it is is like this guy is trying to make Jesus kind of take up this office or this position that is like the exact antithesis to what Jesus actually wants to do among people who are enemies or who are family that can't get along or whatever. And Jesus is just not going to have any of it. He's like, I'm, my job is reconciling. I am not here to split up you and your brother because of whatever issues you have. Uh, that are now being manifest in this inheritance thing. Does that make sense? What I'm saying? Yeah, and I wonder if it's maybe an element of familiarity. Like if we're if we're saying like Jesus doesn't know who this guy is, doesn't even know his name. Maybe he's saying like, how could I possibly make this kind of judgment when I don't know anything about the situation? Mm. And maybe it is the younger brother, but also like maybe maybe the older brother was out of town for some reason when his father died. And so they hand over all the possessions to the younger brother to maintain it while the older brother's gone. And then the older brother comes back and the younger brother's like, you know what? I got this. Mm. I don't, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and I feel like I'm doing a good job stewarding this. I'm going to go and hold on to it and you can just be a part of my household. Mm. Or maybe it's the older brother. Um, and maybe there's lots of brothers. Maybe it's a huge family and you know, the older brother is supposed to, the eldest is supposed to get a double portion to take care of everything else. And then the other brothers go off and start their own families. And maybe he says, you know what, this family's too big. A double portion's not enough. I need more than that to take care of all these people. So I'm going to hold on to it or I'm going to, you know, I'm going to give, I'm going to take more than I should. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's three to one share or whatever. Mm -hmm. So, but we don't know any of those details. Right. And, yeah. and maybe Jesus is saying like, how could I possibly make this judgment when, when there's so much to this story that I don't know, mm -hmm. but he also doesn't, he doesn't ask the question. He's like, well, tell me more. So I can like, he's right. just saying, you know what, whatever the problem is, because I'm sure it's more complicated than how you're presenting it to me. Right. Whatever right. it is, here's what you need to know. Because if yeah. you, if you live by this general idea, you're not going to have to come to me in the first place. Yeah. And so, I mean, cause I imagine, uh, you know, there is the older, but like, I'm glad you said that we don't, we, what is the older brother's side of the story? And so he, whatever his reasons are for not giving out the inheritance to the younger brother, just imagine if you're him and now, uh, this, the authority of the rabbi has the teacher, the teacher has come down and has said, divide it. And now against your will, like your hand is forced and yeah, you're going to give it, but then what's going to happen between those two brothers? Like, what will the state of their relationship be going on after that? And I could imagine it being the kind of thing where it's like, okay, fine, here, like you've completely ignored whatever the, like you younger brother have ignored whatever my reasons were. Yeah, I'll give it to you. But, you know, this is kind of like we're parting ways now. This is the, this is the end of it. Which again, like you've seen, I've, I've seen, and it's like a kind of a stereotypical, like cliche story, but the families who are like, well, dad or mom was all that was keeping us together. And now we've got this will that we've got to sort through and we're arguing over who's getting what and just get the stuff, like, give me whatever it is. And then we're parting ways. And this is now like, we're, we're done. We're over. And I think Jesus is like, we're like, I am not going to be a party to a situation like that. That's how I'm reading it. Yeah. So he's getting ready to tell this parable. And first he gives this word of wisdom where he says, Hey, uh, you know, be on your guard 
because life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And life here, it's the the Zoe, um, which is uh, the same. It's like the life of the age to come, the life of the kingdom. We've talked about this uh, in the episode where we talked about the Good Samaritan, where the lawyer comes to him and says, uh, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So that life is what is what Jesus is talking about here. And, you know, in the Good Samaritan story, the lawyer comes up and Jesus doesn't really answer his question directly. He just says, well, I don't know. How do you read it? And here Jesus gets a little closer to a direct answer, except he's so he's not he's not um, responding with a question, but he's he is responding with, well, here's what it's not. Here's what here's what life, the abundant life, the life that is the life in God. Here's here's where it's not. It does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Uh, and so this is where, uh, I don't know if you're like me or if you talk to people that I, the kind of people that I talk to, but here in our country, we are a possessions, uh, wealthy people. We have lots of stuff. And this is where like we start to get into, well, okay. So are you saying it's wrong to be rich Jesus? And we get into those questions, you know, or is it like, immoral for me to have a bunch of stuff? Is it immoral for is is it immoral to have a bank account that is over this many digits? Is it immoral to have a house that is like this many square feet? And uh we we the defenses go up and we want to see if we can kind of protect that stuff. Um and I I think that this is actually um <clears throat> and that's not what Jesus is talking about. Like I don't think Jesus would be like, yes, it is morally bad to have a bank account that is this many dollars or a house that is this many square feet. I don't think he's, he's getting at that. Uh, he's not saying that it's bad. What he is saying is be careful because life is not there. That's really what we should be asking. It's not like, this is not a right, wrong question, right? About wealth. Is it wrong? Is it right or wrong to be wealthy? Jesus doesn't care about that question. I don't think, I think what he's saying is the thing that you actually want deep down like that Zoe kind of life, that is not in the stuff. So who cares about if it's right or wrong? Even if it's even if it's right, even if it's perfectly fine, I, I think Jesus would be like, how's that working for you? Is all of your stuff, like, is it getting you what you want? Uh, is it giving you that, that Zoe life? Because the thing about possessions, and I think we're all familiar with this, those of us who have possessions, is that there's something about them that they carry this uh, sometimes explicit, but oftentimes this unstated promise that like, yeah, this is where it's at. Like this is, you get this stuff and then you're set, then you're, then you're happy. Um, I would actually call people over to the, the liturgy at this point, because as going backwards to the, the, I think it's the first week of Advent liturgy that we did uh, where we talk about, this idea in light of the Christmas season, which I know is kind of a soft target, like it's an easy target. Um, but like we are familiar, I think, with the phenomenon that like there is a certain promise or excitement that we feel this energy that is like, I'm going to get this stuff and it's going to be great. Uh, this is what I really want. Not all of us are that way. Kids are especially that way. Maybe we train them to be that way accidentally. Um, but, you know, marketing certainly carries with it this promise of like, this is the thing and you want it. And then you and then you get it and you find out that like the actual anticipation of it was more thrilling than even actually having it. 
And that's where Jesus, I think, would say, like, do you see? It's like you can have the thing. You can have all the things. Is it really getting you uh, what you want? Um, <clears throat> there's a psalm that uh, that I use in that Advent liturgy writing uh, that is, I think this is, I think this translation is the altar translation. Ooh, I think fancy. it's the altar translation. Psalm 39, just a few verses. And it says, surely people go through life as mere ghosts. Surely they accumulate worthless wealth without knowing who will eventually haul it away. But now, O oh Lord, upon what am I relying? You are my only hope. Uh, so anyway, for those of us who hear Jesus say this and they're like, well, are you saying that I can't have a retirement package or that I can't have this or can't have that? I just want to say like, that's not really the question that we're asking. The question is, is the life that we're actually looking for, like, is it there whether you like, whether you have it or whether you don't. And I, I do think there is something to say about like, if you have a retirement package, but you don't have a plan for it then that's probably a bad idea. Say more. <laughs> like like it it should not be worthless wealth. Mm. It should it should have there should be a purpose for it. Uh you should have a plan for it for when you for when you leave. Yeah, well and and this is getting into kind of what I read as the main point of this parable and of this whole situation, but even Psalm 39 where it says without knowing who will eventually haul it away. Like if if I die, and I have accumulated wealth, um, I hope that I know who is going to receive it. And I have to ask the question, if I have no one to receive it, why is that? And is there something uh, awry in the way that I have lived my life and conducted my relationships if I have wealth and I have no one and I don't know who's going to get it? Uh, but we'll get into that. So Jesus tells a story like he does. Because, you know, the hardest things to hear about ourselves are things that we can't hear directly. Uh, and he speaks to them. Uh, well, he, I guess he's speaking to them when he says life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Uh, and who he's talking to there. I mean, I, I, I don't know. You, you had a note on this. I, I don't know if it's the two brothers. Like, maybe they're both there. Because that's why the, well, that's why the, brother, that's why the younger brother's like, hey, tell him. And he's like standing right there. I don't know if he's speaking to the disciples or to the whole crowd, uh, but he, he, he says life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And then he tells this story. Uh, and essentially, this story is about a guy who uh, more or less wins the lottery. Like he, he kind of he gets everything he could ever want. Uh, I, I, I have it. Like he, he wins the agricultural lottery. He has a great year, uh, a year that is so big that now he is set for life. And it's it's maybe a little bit unexpected, this windfall that he gets, because he's he's got to now he's not prepared for what he is going to do with it. And so he's got to figure that out. Uh, and here, I, I also think this is kind of a comic um, parable. This guy, like the way that Jesus paints him, uh, it's comedic. It's a little um, he's a little uh, I picture him as just a little bit frantic and uh, jittery and He's notably alone. He is speaking to himself. He is thinking to himself. It is only I, 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 my, my, my. Uh, and notably, I mean, as, as good rugged individualists that we are, maybe this doesn't pop out to us. But I would think that culturally, uh, this is not a decision that somebody in Jesus' time 
should be just making a loan in isolation, right? Like they, I would expect uh, that they would have some family, some friends, people in the community, even who are kind of all sitting around uh, just shooting out like the wisdom of, or their ideas about what could be done with it. Uh, And this guy has, has no one to consult with. Yeah. I I was looking at Psalm 49 in relation to this. Okay. Um, There's, there's some, you know, some sorts of parallels in what Jesus is talking about. Um, But it says for all can see that the wise die, that the foolish and the senseless also perish, leaving their wealth to others, which in this case, he doesn't really leave it to others necessarily. Uh, Their tombs will remain their houses forever, their dwellings for endless generations, though they had named lands after themselves. So like this guy's, (laughs) it seems like the kind of thing that this guy would do. People, despite their wealth, do not endure. They are like the beasts that perish. This is the fate of those who trust in themselves Mm -hmm. and of their followers who approve their sayings. Mm. But in this Mm. case, this guy doesn't even have any followers. Like, yeah, he's got in total contrast to what we would expect. Yeah, he's got nobody uh, to talk to. He's he's just talking. And I'll say to myself is what he says. Uh, And so then I just I, I I'm picturing like. Uh, the, the energy that I'm picturing is like in those corny scenes when somebody is trying to work up the, the courage to like tell somebody how they feel about them and they're like rehearsing, you know, and they're talking to themselves. I just pictured this guy talking to himself like that makes it kind of funny in my mind. Um, but he convinces himself that the best course of action is to, to store it away, uh, and, and these bigger barns, I will build bigger barns. And I want to point out here, like one of the thoughts I had is that so far, I don't think we've actually encountered any like inherent problem, like an obvious problem. Like it's not necessarily a bad thing that you win the agricultural lottery. Uh, It is not even necessarily a bad thing that you would build barns to store it away um, because you don't want it just to like rot out in the open. And so storing it up does not seem like an automatically like wicked or evil thing to do. Um, and so we, I, but I think we start to encounter the problem after this, when, when in his prosperity, he believes that he is going to be secure for many years and that he is now just free to pursue his own comforts. Like in that string of phrases, it says you have plenty of grain. So he's got prosperity for many years. There is this sense that like, and I think we can relate to this too, when we have prosperity, when it's a really good financial year or when, you know, we're, we see our bank account number growing, there is this sense that like, now I am secure. Like now it's going, I'm going to endure. We're going to be okay. Uh, and then he says, take life easy. And I think this is where we start to get into uh, this guy's uh, folly, I guess. Um, he even quotes a Bible verse to, to assure himself when he says, eat, drink, and be merry. So uh, he's quoting Ecclesiastes here, uh, chapter eight, um, just lifting that verse, which I think we've heard before, um, especially Dave Matthews fans. They're going to know what I'm talking about. Uh, they eat, drink, and be merry. Um, and that's that's what I'm going to do. Um, and it's kind of ironic that Jesus puts this verse in this guy's mouth um, because this guy's thinking is, I'm all set. I'm good forever. Now I'm just going to take it easy. Uh, And the surrounding context in Ecclesiastes 8 um, also speaks to uh, nobody knows the day of their death. There is actually like a a deeply embedded 
uh, uncertainty about how long anyone will live. Even uh, what you were reading from Psalm 49 doesn't matter, rich or poor, like nobody knows nothing is nothing will nothing is certain to last. And also in the surrounding verses, I even noted in Ecclesiastes eight, it talks about how the wicked sometimes get what the righteous deserve. Uh, And I wonder if there is like this guy, I wonder if there's like a, again, a comedic kind of obliviousness to this guy as Jesus paints him that like, Maybe this guy is even a wicked person, quote unquote, who uh, is getting something that he doesn't really deserve. I mean, the way that the story goes, uh, he's not really an active agent in his prosperity here. Like Jesus just says, the ground yielded uh, a, a, a plentiful harvest, meaning like this guy just kind of reaps the benefits of something that is totally out of his control. Anyway, so that's kind of where this guy is at. And then God shows up. And and suddenly, this is like the the scary part where uh, God calls him a fool, and this man suddenly realizes or he discovers that actually his life is not going to be nearly as long as he thought, nor is he going to be able to enjoy any of that wealth that he had decided to store up for himself. And then God just asked this final question, which I which closes the curtain on the story. And I love I love this by the way because it reminds me of like the end of the book of Jonah. When God just, when the whole thing ends with a question and then it's like curtain closes and now you are just left as the hearer to like wonder what is the answer to this question. Uh, and it's a dramatic. And now the the things that you have prepared for yourself, whose will they be? Whose will they be? And again, I want to pay attention to this question. It feels like the linchpin of the story and it gets back around to what I'm suggesting is kind of the the main problem here with this younger brother and in that it's a it's a who question that God is asking as opposed to like other questions that maybe God could ask here that he's not asking like God is not phrasing it in terms of like a how like how is this wealth going to be distributed or how is it going to be preserved now that you are dead or even like a why question like why did you store this up in the first place or why were you not obedient uh, to, you know, the word of God that says that you could have done any of these other, or sh- maybe should have done any of these other number of things with it. God's not asking those questions. It's not about, uh, this man's obedience or his piety or anything like that. The final question is just whose will it be? And yes, I think there is a part of this story that wants to communicate absolutely like the foolishness of believing that wealth or life are permanent. And I think that's a that's a reading that we can all easily come away with. But the I, I just kept getting stuck on this whose will it be? God putting the emphasis there because he he puts God is putting the emphasis on, I think, a relationship or relationships. It's as if God wants to say, I think, you know, uh, you know, man, rich landowner, barn builder, this could have been somebody's. This could have been somebody's in life but you kept it for yourself. Augustine, uh, I think, kind of famously wrote about this. He said, the bellies of the poor would have made better storehouses for this man's grain than his barns. Hmm. It could have been distributed to people in your life, people that you know, people that you have compassion for, people that you care about, but you kept it for yourself. And having done so, you have isolated yourself. And now in your death, you have no one to pass it to. You've got no one to, in your life. You had no one to consult with about what you should do with it. And now in your death, like, who do you have? 
Who's it going to go to? Do you have any brothers, maybe? Do you have any children? Do you have any friends that this is going to go to? And, you know, the rhetorical nature of the question obviously would imply a a no one answer. And so, again, like we're going to take this now and we're going to remember about parables, what we have said before, that the parables that we're talking about don't exist in a vacuum. Like this is not just Jesus teaching on the hillside. Uh, he is teaching. But in this case, he's he's interrupted by somebody with a very personal question uh, who is coming with lots of assumptions. Uh, and that is this younger brother who, as we said, is already living in some state of division from his older brother. Jesus is refusing to divide them any further. And this younger brother coming with this demand, which is, you know, hey, my father has died. Tell me, tell my brother to give me what's mine. Jesus takes that. And I love how Jesus does this with the parables. He flips that demand uh, into a question that reverses the focus. And instead of it being about uh, what this brother is going to get that's his after his father's death, the question that Jesus poses is, if even if you do get everything you want, younger brother, if you're like this guy who wins the agricultural lottery, you get it all, you have your inheritance, but that comes at the cost of these relationships. So like in another way of saying it, if you gain the whole world, but you lose your soul, the question then becomes, who will get what's yours when you die? Are you setting yourself on a trajectory with your insistence about this wealth, with your insistence about this inheritance that is going to leave you in a position that when it's, when it's your time, you've got nobody around you? Because again, like I, I, thinking back to what do we imagine will happen, and I don't really know, but that's the fun about the parables in these situations is you can do a lot of imagining. If Jesus forces the older brother's hand, I can easily see it being, you know, they, they walk away from each other. Uh, yeah, he gets what he, what he wants. Um, but maybe they don't talk to each other anymore, or maybe there's a very cold relationship now existing between the two of him. And so I hear when Jesus puts the question, uh, God's question, whose will it be? I hear in that, again, what I'm reading is the theme throughout all of this. It's not just a, it's not just a warning about getting rich. I think it is a warning about uh, how, what we do with our wealth when it comes to the relationships around us. And I think there are kind of two options. Is it so again, the question of is it immoral or immoral to have a lot of stuff? I don't know. The question is, whatever you have, you can use it as a bridge to build relationships with people around you, or you can it can become an abyss between you where now you have uh, you have you have no one at the end of your life to give it to. Well, and it's interesting how he closes the parable. He says, this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but it's not rich toward God. Mm hmm. And I wonder if that's like, uh, I mean, this, I guess, would probably come before the other, where he talks about, you know, whatever you've done for the least of these, you've done for me. Absolutely. If anyone is hungry and you fed him, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I, I wonder if it's something along those lines where it's like, look, it doesn't even have to be family. Like you have lots of options for what you can do with this. Yeah, I mean, I think about a. There's a passage in I don't I don't know the chapter off the top of my head, but in Jeremiah, where uh, the the word of the Lord comes and it says it talks about doing justice for the poor, which I think would be to take care of their needs, uh, and then and then and then the word of the Lord says, "Is not this to know me?" And so there is a tie a direct equivalence made between 
uh, using what you have to take care of those who don't have, and that is knowing God. And so to be rich toward them, I think is it's the same thing that you're talking about with, uh, you know, you did it to, when you did it to Lisa these, you did it to me. When you did it, you were knowing me. Uh, to be rich towards me is to take care of the people around you. And it just goes to show that, like, that's, it's not about wealth per se. Like, there is a much more interesting dynamic question going on. That's It's not about stuff. Like, stuff is just a tool. You can use it well or you can not use it well. And I think primarily what defines using it well is how it's about the people. Uh, That's something we talked about uh, on this podcast. You and Marty have talked about it many times throughout. I remember you guys talking about this a lot in the Sermon on the Mount. It's about people. Like, this isn't about morality in a vacuum. It's not about obedience in a vacuum. Like, this is about people. It's not about wealth in a vacuum. It's about people. Uh, And there is a great deal of potential that we have with our stuff to either isolate ourselves from those around us or to use it to to bridge gaps, to make connections, to be merciful, to be just. Yeah. And, you know, then it's just left to, I think the, in, the end of the story is like, you know, there's, there's the question that God asks and then the little coda at the end from Jesus saying, so it will be. And then we don't know what happens. Um, and this is typical. We don't, we don't know what happens with this brother. Like, will he see himself? As the barn builder, uh, does or does he hear it and does he see the does he see his brother as the barn builder? And he's like, yeah, that guy, he's so greedy. I hope he's listening, you know. Uh, and and is he missing the point because he's trying to make it about someone else? Is he trying to deflect? Does he get it and go back and restore a relationship with his brother, mm-hmm. or does he just like ugh and go find another rabbi? Yeah, to try to resolve it for him. Yeah, Ken Ken Bailey uh, is somebody we've talked about many times, and he's he's not just uh, a scholar; like he's a little bit of a poet too. And uh, in his book "Through Peasant Eyes," when he is writing about this parable, um, he writes this beautiful poem to like cap it all off, in which he imagines these two brothers uh, who have a share of their father's wealth uh, after he has died and the one lives alone and the other has a family and uh, they each um, imagine that there is an injustice about what they have received. But the twist to it is that they think that their brother should have more than they do. And they secretly, each of them secretly, like in a monologue to themselves, makes a plan to go out in the middle of the night and move the boundary marker like into their own field so that their brother's field would be bigger. And they both meet there, like in the middle of the night, realizing that they're both trying to do the same thing. And they like fall into each other's arms weeping. And it's this beautiful picture of reconciliation. Uh, And so, yeah, I think that's, that's, that's now up to us. Like whether we can hear and see ourselves in the story uh, I, if you have, a, I don't know, you have a lot of stuff. You don't have a lot of stuff. Again, that's not really the question of that's whether that's right or wrong. It's you have an opportunity here to use this, uh, to, to bridge gaps, to build relationships, to support other people, to reconcile, to do any number of things that are good and kingdom minded. Uh, but as long as you insist on fairness and quote unquote justice, like if everything just comes out, comes around to like being about, uh, the bottom line and are the books properly balanced, there is a way in which fairness can really kill 
uh, grace and mercy in our relationships. And there's even, I mean, that even made me think of, um, there's a line in Paul, I think it's second Corinthians maybe where he's talking about disputes among the people and taking people to court. And he just says, you know, why not just be wronged? Like, why not just be taken advantage of and just like, what, what's the worst that happens if that happens? But if you're able to like maintain it or develop any kind of grace uh, in your relationships with these people, but as long as everybody's always insisting on what is just and fair and theirs, then, you know, that can really tear people apart in the name of, uh, in the name of justice. Hmm. So the next time uh, somebody owes you because you went in on a gift together for somebody else and they haven't Venmoed you, uh, maybe, maybe you don't have to send the text that's like, hey, <laughs> just want to remind you that you still owe me seventeen fifty for you know what we got for the, like you could just just let it go and see what happens. Maybe something good will happen. Yeah, on the on the idea of uh, Christmas being the recent experience. Uh, <laughs> It's definitely fun. And I do like, I I'm kind of thinking still about like, are we training our kids to, um, you know, be a certain way about possessions and, and, uh, the importance of getting things or whatever. But, uh, my kids are four and one, right? So it's not, not quite there yet. Um, but it's, it's, uh, interesting to watch how everything plays out with them. Cause like my four-year-old Darius, he sees Torin open his first gift and Darius is more interested in Torin's gift than anything else he got. <laughs> and Torin opens his gifts and he tears the wrapping paper off and then is more interested in climbing on the box that it's in than actually opening it and playing with the toy. Mm. And of course that has shifted and moved around as the weeks have gone by. Um, isn't that, isn't that interesting and, though? You know, there's, there's struggle about like, you know, whose is this? Do I get to play with this? Oh, I'm just borrowing this. It's like, no, you're not borrowing that. You actually, he was trying to play with that and you took it from him. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, there's also these moments of like, oh, I'm going to give Torin two of my dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. And it's like, wow. Okay. And like that is, it's, it's just crazy to go the, the contrast between all the different things that they have done in the last few weeks um, is, is very silly, but also sometimes just absolutely beautiful. I think it's an interesting phenomenon with kids, how like you could like one kid cannot have seen or touched or cared about something that's theirs for like months on end. And then as soon as one of my other kids picks it up, they're like, Hey, that's mine. Oh yeah. You know what I mean? And that kind of, it's, I don't know, like this is, this is like an aside that's you know not direct i it's just my thoughts about christmas are yeah i want to keep the magic alive and it is fun and exciting to like see things under the tree and yet like i also don't want to make it seem to you like all of life is about getting stuff like that's the that's the tension that's there and we've each got to find a way to walk through it so i don't know maybe just again and like back to the point of this parable like encouraging uh our kids like stuff is stuff is fine but how we use it in terms of uh the way we relate to other people is that's that's really the question here that's that's there's an opportunity for that life that zoe if we will if we'll go there then whatever you have no matter how big or how small like if you're if you're just insisting on fairness and keeping it for yourself then Okay, that's fine, but I think you're you're withering, you're dying, you're you're losing something much more important. So, 
All right. Well, I think that does it for this uh, this center episode on parables. Yeah, I think that's that's all I've got for this one. Okay. Well, we'll be back. We've got two more episodes. We've got to talk about The Lost Son next week, and then we're going to do The Unforgiving Servant to close it out, which I feel like is probably maybe the... I don't know. I don't know. These are all, these are all pretty big parables. Oh, yeah. I mean, The Unforgiving Servant is where it's going to get more intensely personal. Uh, but, you know, there's... I just didn't think there was any way we could not do this one in a in an anthology on parables. Yes. Okay. Well, that does it for this episode. Um, check out the Baymoss Slack if you want to poke Reed and tell him all of your thoughts on these parables and um, get some conversation going there. And uh, if you want to find Marty, you can get a hold of him on Twitter at Marty Solomon. I'm at EIBCB there. Of course, uh, we're both on the Baymoss Slack to some extent. And you can find more details about the show at BaymontDeception.com. So thanks for joining us on the Baymont Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.